Welcome to Energy Radio. Today I'm joined by Adrian Baker, the Director of Energy and Mines. Adrian, welcome to Energy Radio. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. Likewise, uh, great to have you and uh, heard great things about you. This is the first time we had the chance to meet, but uh, I know your organization and the good work you do. And for our listeners, let's just jump right in and tell us your origin story or, you know, how did you kind of come to be to this place? And uh, if, if you will, let us get to know you a little bit before we uh, go into the topic of the day. Sure, Matt. So my background, I was a financial journalist. Um, that's how I started my career. And I was editing magazines around uh, investor relations and corporate governance. And I was covering a lot of uh, stories related. This is, this is obviously a good 20 years ago. Um, stories around uh, the rising investor interest in uh, in carbon emissions and climate change, and got sort of really interested in in some of those issues. And uh, as editor of these publications, I started chairing conferences. And uh, the company I was working for at the time uh, did a conference on uh, in London how investors were starting to really. Uh, focus on carbon risk and this was a good you know 15 years ago now so that was that was how I got really interested in uh, climate issues and corporate governance and all the rest of it and then I transitioned to producing events around renewable energy and that's sort of how I landed here Uh, we founded our company in 2010 as Canadian Clean Energy Conferences. And to start off, we were just doing events really focused on renewables in Canada. So we did a whole uh, series of events on different provincial procurements for renewable energy. So the Ontario feed-in tariff, um, there was a procurement in Nova Scotia we did events on. And up until uh, last year, we did an event on Alberta and Saskatchewan's uh, procurement for renewable energy. Um, so that's really where we got started. And about, well, I guess it's nine years ago now, we started to look at the development for, uh, or business opportunities for renewables was starting to move away from uh, these government-backed uh, power purchase agreements and more towards uh you know, um, opportunities directly with uh, end buyers. So whether that's remote communities or mining companies. And uh, through a conversation, a rather detailed conversation I had with Barrett Gold, we decided Mm. to launch a conference on uh, renewable energy for the mining sector. So that was nine years ago. And now we've done over 17 events on that topic. So specifically around how mines are integrating renewable energy to address, uh, first of all, price issues, cost issues, but now more and more carbon issues. So it it's a really it's a subject I'm very passionate about, and it's a topic that is very uh, hot right now in the resource sector. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of my background. That's cool. Sort of my- yeah. Very exciting. And before we move forward in the mining sector and the emissions piece, uh, you mentioned that the, the renewable procurements in Ontario 
Uh, and and so what what were the names of those conferences? Because I'm something in my deep recesses of my brain is starting to connect some dots here uh, with with you. I think uh, what were what were the names of those conferences? Uh, the Ontario Feed and Tariff Supply Chain Forum, the Ontario Fit Forum, uh, the Nova Scotia Feed and Tariff Forum. I think it was called the Alberta and Saskatchewan Renewable Energy Finance Summit. Those I were, think I remember uh, the, the the second one you mentioned, the Ontario Fit Forum, because I spent uh, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in in the biogas uh, sector for a while. Um, so we had a, a bit of a side business doing biogas, and and it's it still exists. We we don't have any affiliation with it, but I did about six years of biogas project development, and you know we did I think ten projects across Ontario, most of them with a Fit contract. So that was between the time of. 09 and 2013, 2014, I think. Yeah. So I served on the board with Jennifer Green of the Biogas Association. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we did a whole day on biogas on one, um, one year with the fit. So I worked with Jennifer on that. So yeah. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. She's, she's an energy radio podcast alum as well. So she was. Okay. She was cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're, you're in you're in good company, company that you know well. So good. So let let's just go from there and and talk about you know this emissions piece. I guess you know you have this perspective of you know these these 15 years. I think you mentioned, and already then there was this investor inquiry or you know question raising around. Um, emissions and how have you seen that kind of migrate because i think you know my view and i we just had this conversation just the other day about how i think we're now finally at an inflection point where we're changing from the carbon discussion the renewable energy discussion being a policy government policy driven discussion and it's finally being something that is, is is driven by you know activist shareholders and and the public putting their money where their mouth is but it, it's not something that's happened overnight you know, can you maybe talk to us a little bit about how you've seen that progress what you know is was it just a growth in awareness were there certain things that happened like how has that progressed in terms of investors wanting to see us manage that carbon risk better yeah, it's. I mean, it's a really exciting time right now. I'd say the last uh, year, perhaps even maybe six months, we've seen the biggest developments, and that's with the major on the strictly speaking on the mining side, sure. with the big mines like BHP and Anglo American and Rio setting midterm targets for 2030, and. Okay and setting high ambitious uh, t carbon reduction targets. That is a direct reflection of the pressure they're feeling from investors and customers. So we're seeing sort of this, this really interesting uh, time where investors are getting really serious about this. And part of this is about the Paris Agreement and being able to meet those targets and wanting to see that the companies they're invested in are actually have not only address that, but have a concrete plan to reach those targets. So, so that's the shift that I think you're describing is not only are they 
kind of setting these ambitious carbon reduction targets, they're now feeling pressure to actually lay out a plan to meet those. So that's where we're seeing a lot of activity. And that's, that's I think, the big, big change. And when you see the, um, and, and that's been described to us in, in our events and, and many of the conversations we've had, in particular with the mining sector, around what they're hearing from shareholders, is it's not enough to have this sort of strategic vision of what you'd like to do in terms of reducing your exposure, now you have to have a plan. And a plan involves, you know, testing a variety of technologies, um, collaborating with other companies, and really trying to seek out government support in some cases to really get to their targets. Um, because right now, there's no that right now everyone will miss them <laughs> unless there is a lot of work done in the next 10 years. So um, so that to me is, is the really exciting thing is that not only do we have, and I think it's all in line with the Paris Agreement and investors wanting their, investors feeling a responsibility, right? To demonstrate that they're investing in responsible companies, some investors pulling completely out of carbon intensive companies and, and making a big statement there. And then the I guess the other piece um, related to carbon is customers. And we're seeing that, you know, customers like Apple has, has said that they're going to have 100% uh, carbon neutral supply chain and product by 2030. So that's, I mean, that's a big deal. And yeah. that really impacts the material sector and other sectors that are supplying to those big companies. So customers are demanding sustainable products. So that's making it so that you can't sell to them unless you've done your job in reducing your carbon emissions. So I'd say investors and customers, it's it's been a major sea change. And we won't see that let up. It'll just increase and, and intensify. Yeah, and, and what I you know what I'm hearing you say is there's really these two factors. There's there's the Paris Agreement that flows through the shareholders, so there's the pressure there, but then there's this market-driven pressure of you know the supply chain is basically saying um, you know thou shalt be progressing towards a reduced carbon you know supply or else thou shalt be progressing to try to find some other customer because we're not going to buy from you, right? Um, and, and what I talk to me a little bit about, you know, that I, I personally am excited by that because, you know, particularly let's rewind 10 years ago, you're trying to build a business in an Ontario context around a, a government, you know, driven procurement and then government changes and, um, you know, the, those, those papers get ripped up. Right. And whereas I think confirm this for me, but I think we're seeing something that's perhaps a level up and so that the whims of the whims of government may affect how quickly we move forward, but it's the 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 trajectory is going to be the same. I think that's kind of where you you landed was we're not going to let up here, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point you make and it's sort of um, I think initially a lot of, you know, in the energy or renewable energy space, a lot of it was uh, dependent on big government procurements, right? And you saw that with FIT and and that that built a, a renewable energy industry in Canada. Um, but I think uh, what is happening now with industry and pressure to decarbonize is 
is relentless. It's, it's, it's gone. It's happening. We've seen it with, um, because we're mostly in tune with our content and events with the, the mining sector, we've seen it really strongly there. We've seen companies like Rio Tinto, which have, you know, um, you know, they've done a small solar project uh, years ago. All of a sudden, they're looking at large-scale solar. They're looking at multiple renewable energy projects around the world. They're seriously looking at hydrogen. That is a direct reflection of the pressure they feel from shareholders to outline a plan to be to survive the low carbon economy. So that is that is way bigger than Ontario politics. It's really exciting. And and I mean we're really excited about it because now there's not only you know a draw a cost driver because renewables is cheaper uh, for the most part for industry to use. I mean that's a very broad statement, but um, in many parts of the world and many uh, for many sites, but there's this um, this pressure uh, to decarbonize energy and transport. And that is really, um, that is part of being able to uh, do business um, over the long term. And, and companies recognize that, shareholders recognize that, customers are starting to recognize that. So there's a confluence of things happening, um, which is, is making it for a very exciting time. Yeah, for sure. So so we've kind of talked a bit about kind of this macro positive pressure towards, you know, solving this problem. Maybe talk to us a little bit for those who aren't day to day involved in the mining sector. Talk to us about some of the sources of those emissions, like what is happening in the value chain that's that's, you know, the big two or three areas where a lot of emissions are being created and and, and the, those are obviously the areas where they're going to tackle but maybe just give us a, an introduction in terms of where in the supply chain are, are these emissions coming from well i have to say matt that my focus or our focus um is very specifically on two areas so we 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 talk about zero emissions mining but really what we're looking at is the energy supply and mobility so big mining trucks and equipment so really what's on site we don't look at processing so much we don't look at you know delivering off-site or shipping or that sort of thing we're really our our focus is really on specifically or traditionally on renewable energy being integrated into a mining's power system at site or a purchase agreement for a mine that is connected to the grid um, and now we're starting to look um, more closely at how mines can decarbonize their their big trucks and their fleets and their equipment because that is that can be up to half of their emissions. So those are those are the two kind of areas that that we look at the energy or the emissions intensity of their energy and um, transport and how they can decarbonize those and. Um, always through the lens of renewable energy so for uh and there's a big link there because in order to decarbonize a mine fleet you have to have a clean energy source either through large-scale renewables or a renewable energy microgrid so that you can power green hydrogen or um or electric vehicles um, with renewable energy otherwise you're not decarbonizing 
your mobility. So that's kind of where we're focused on. Those are the two major focuses of um, the mining sector's decarbonization efforts. Um, so they're looking to basically integrate renewable energy. Um, they're also looking at other low carbon options um, in terms of their power supply. And then they're looking at different options to decarbonize fleets. Hydrogen is, is a big one. It's getting a lot of attention these days. And then of course, uh, electrification, which I mentioned. So let, let's unpack that the first one of those two uh, areas within the mine, that, 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 that power supply issue and this decarbonization with renewables. Um, paint a picture for us in terms of, like I, I, in my mind, I'm picturing you know, a remote mine with on-site power generation. Like, like what's the base case? And then what are some of the, there's probably a couple strategies from a power supply that, that, that are being considered or implemented. You know, talk us through the base case and then what some of the options are to decarbonize that power supply. Well, if you're, it sort of starts with, okay, if you're a mine, a remote mine, you're usually reliant on diesel. Um, in Australia, they use diesel and gas for remote mines. Um, and you, and so you've got to get away from that as, as soon as possible. Um, and um, diesel's expensive, it's carbon intensive, but it's been the only option for a long time. Um, we've seen over the last uh, you know, I'd say 15 years, uh, mines have been integrating renewable energy. For the most part, that has been on um, a small scale. So maybe, you know, one to 10 megawatts. That was sort of the standard or even smaller for many years. But over the last five years, that's, that's creeping up. So we're seeing, um, for instance, in Australia, uh, Goldfields Agnew Mine has integrated solar, wind, and battery storage, and they're using up to 50% uh, renewable energy to power their site. They've got some some gas as well on that site. Um, when that you say is, yeah. you, you mean literally on site, there's a solar field, there's some wind maybe, there's energy storage, and it's literally co-located with the mine, and it's, it's, yeah. it's all right there. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, and that's how it works for these remote sites. Is it's you know they're they're using it on site, and you sort of start off with um, you know you look at the feasibility of what which option is best for you. So if you have a good wind resource, then you might integrate that. Solar has been predominantly the um, the option. I mean, it's used it's been used in many mines in Africa. Um, it's also been used in Australia on different sites. Um, we're starting to see storage becoming almost automatic and more and more we're seeing wind become part of the equation. In Canada, it's, it's wind. I mean, we have wind at the Divic mine in um, up north. I can't exactly remember where, but in the Arctic. And then we have, um, we have wind and hydrogen at Glencore's Raglan mine in, in northern Quebec. Um, there's a few other mines that are currently assessing, De Beers has a new operation in the Arctic where they're looking to be 100% renewable energy in a very harsh climate. So they're looking to combine wind, solar and storage in an Arctic mine, which is, they wanna be 100% renewable energy for that site because it's 
going to be diesel reliant. So with the carbon price in Canada, um, it's uneconomic um, for a mine to run on diesel. The, the cost is just too high and you can't actually start up a new mine um, you know, in, in the north completely reliant on diesel with a, with a carbon price. Um, so you have mines, I know Agnico Eagle is looking at large scale wind in the north in Nunavut. So you have mines really, uh, it just, it's just um, impossible in some cases uh, to make the, to run a mine without integrating uh, some form of renewable energy. And, and the size of the project is getting bigger because uh, the technology has been proven and the sector is more comfortable. So that's how it works if you've got a remote site. If you've got a mine site that is connected to the grid, um, you can uh, purchase renewable energy through a PPA uh, power purchase agreement. And we've seen that in Chile where um, there's been multiple utility scale or you know, large scale renewable energy contracts for Chilean mines so much so that many of those mines are now going to be running on 100% renewable energy. So it's it's very exciting what's happening, um, very. happening quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so just to unpack that, because I would imagine that most of the sites are remote sites in terms of like, like the fact to have a site that's connected to a, a, an electrical distribution infrastructure is probably uh, in the minority, correct? Um, it depends, really. Like, um, there are more remote mines than grid connected. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, in that remote mine situation, you have wind and solar, but you have, you know, fuel sources that are, you know, not, you know, running all the time. Whether it's not windy or it's the nighttime. So, I mean, is the, what's the barrier to a hundred percent adoption? Is it just, you know? The price of, of storage or alternative technologies like or or is it just we're, we're almost there and it's it's going to get adopted between those three that that you know they can move regardless of how you know how windy or not it is or how sunny it is that they can get 100 percent um renewables for their power supply yeah i mean you're, you're exactly right i mean it is um, wind and solar are intermittent, so you do need a backup. And, and so we're getting closer to having storage as a backup, um, whether it's battery storage or hydrogen. Um, we, a lot of the number that we're talking about or that we talked about uh, most recently at our uh, virtual event, um, which was focused on Australia was 70%. So 70% was the number we talked about getting to with uh, comfortably with renewable energy. Um, there's, there's, um, but as I say, there's, there's mines. Um, there is a mine in Australia, um, Fortescue Metals Group, which is working on uh, a large-scale solar battery storage with some uh, a transmission line, which they'll be um, getting gas from uh, to run on 100% solar during the daytime. So mines still need. Uh, base load, whether that's um, you know uh, diesel backup, gas, um, whether it's um, storage, they still need to have that backup because they have to, as you say, run 24 hours a day. Otherwise, they they lose uh, obscene amounts of money if their power system goes down. So that reliability is critical. I think the barrier is less. I think the technology is is getting there really, really quickly, and we'll see. Um, 
So we, we some of the, the microgrids for remote mines we featured are, you know, 50, 70 percent maybe getting there. Um, I think we'll get to the 100 percent mark, you know, with the next round of big projects that we see coming down. And that's the goal. That's the goal the mines are setting for themselves. Um, so I'd say we'll be there in two to three years and that'll be brilliant. And, and once you have a few of those operating, then everyone will really jump on board. Um, the barriers can be um, can be cultural. Perhaps, you know, they, a lot of times you want to test out the technology. The barriers can be site specific. They can be economic. There's still there's still a lot of challenges. These aren't easy projects to do, um, but the challenges are very specific to that site and and that management team and and um, so it's hard to really say um, you know what they are generally. But um, but yeah, financing can still be a barrier as well. So on that financing piece, are are, are a lot of these essentially power plants is what they are. Are they being self-financed by the, the mine owner or are they having a, a, a power company co-locate with them or how, do that, how does that get done? Yeah, well, both ways. I mean, they, they um, some mines like B2 Gold uh, based in Vancouver, they self-finance their solar project, um, the Ficola solar project in, I believe it's in Mali, they self-financed that. Um, they chose to do that. They had they had lots of expertise in-house. Um, there have been others that ha have chosen that, but a lot of times the mine will opt for a PPA with a independent power producer who, um, you know, is able to take on uh, a certain amount of risk and they will pay for the power um, and that's a, a comfortable arrangement because of course mines are used to leasing gen sets and um, having that sort of arrangement with their power suppliers so power purchase agreements um, allow them to save on that upfront capital costs and just pay for the energy uh, that they use because of course there is some um, mines are very risk adverse, although they're in a very risky business. Um, so they, there's often a preference to not want to take on that capital risk on the balance sheet. So that's sort of the, the financing side of it. Um, it can work either way, and, but we've seen a lot of uh, PPAs and the, the paybacks for the PPAs are getting shorter and shorter so that's that's another piece of it because there is an issue around uh the life of a mine say the mine's only going to be operating for 10 years and the payback on a solar project is 15 years so how do you sort of align those two the the payback periods are getting shorter to better meet uh the life of mine so that's another kind of thing that has evolved over the past few years and made these projects more viable and are the projects going into existing mines or are they going only in when a mine is you know initiated or, or both maybe um both i mean there's lots of um you know we're seeing um for mines that are diesel reliant they're automatically looking at a renewable energy solution it is part of the feasibility study for the energy system on the mine almost automatically i would say all of them are doing it i'm sure maybe some aren't but you know it's it's a very normal part of the process because we've got lots of examples of it working and being in operation and 
that makes uh, miners more comfortable. Um, and doing it at the greenfield stage is is perhaps a um, you know an easier process because you can really evaluate how uh, how the power system fits with the energy demands and and load requirements of the mine. Um, some mines are actually designing their entire operation around having a renewable power system. So there's a mine in Australia that is currently developing its whole mindset around having 100% renewable energy. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, but then we also see mines that are in operation, diesel reliant. They think, well, you know, if we integrate um, a bit of solar or, or a lot of solar, then that's going to make this much more economically viable. So it's still, I'd say it's it's standard for a new site to evaluate, um, and but we still we're still seeing it happen for existing sites as well. It just depends on their their life of mine. So how long the operation is in, expected to go on for, then it then it may or may not make uh, economic sense. Right. Okay. 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 And so the the buzzword these days, uh, from our perspective, is hydrogen. Right. Everybody's talking about hydrogen. You know, there's yeah. maybe some big upcoming announcement by the, the the federal government here in Canada, and hydrogen may or may not have a big part in that. Um, where does hydrogen fit into the discussion from a mining perspective? Is it on the the you know the transportation piece within the mine, or is it also on the power generation side? Where where are you seeing hydrogen fit into this whole ecosystem? Yeah, hydrogen's really exciting. Um, and it's got a lot of attention, particularly in amongst the mines in Chile and Australia, um, because there's big government support. So maybe if we have uh, an announcement in terms of Canada's hydrogen roadmap, we'll see some opportunities here. I know there were a couple of mines in Ontario looking at hydrogen. Um, the way the applications for mines are uh, power, transport and processing. So on the power side, it's if you have a lot, you know, if you have a, a renewable energy microgrid, you have a lot of excess solar or wind, you can um, integrate hydrogen. It, it makes sense to integrate hydrogen. Um, and once you've integrated hydrogen, you could then also use that hydrogen to uh, fuel your big fleet. So um, so on the power side, it's really if you have a integrating hydrogen as a, a storage on a microgrid. On the um, on the transport side, it's using you know hydrogen fuel cells to power big trucks. On that side, I think that is the piece that is getting the most attention right now. Um, there is um, Anglo American. Uh, is working on a hydrogen-powered uh, fuel cell. They're working with uh, Angie and a company called First Mode, and they're um, designing the world's first hydrogen-powered fleet uh, or truck. Um, you know, they're using solar to power to make that hydrogen. So it's all that'll be really exciting to watch. I believe that Weita, another um, manufacturer, also has a hydrogen-powered truck for mines. Um, that's what we kind of think will be the uh, nearest-term broad application for the mining sector. And it's 
it fits with their focus right now because you can, as I mentioned before, you can have up to 50% of your carbon associated, the intensity of a mining company's carbon emissions associated with, uh, they call DP, D, um, material movement, which is obviously trucks and equipment. So trying to draw that down, you need to find a solution, you need to displace diesel. And right now there's sort of a, uh, weighing options uh, between hydrogen and electric uh, operated fleet. So, um, so yeah, hydrogen is and the other, I guess, piece for hydrogen and mining is heat processing. Um, there's some applications there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's perhaps not as uh, front and center at the moment as the vehicle and power applications. But um, there are some mines that are really seriously looking at this and, um, you know, I think they see this as potentially a big part of their decarbonization strategy. Um, and, yeah. And, and on that material movement piece, is there, a, is there kind of a, a foot race on in terms of hydrogen versus electric powered vehicles? Like, is there a, are they both kind of competing for... Um, you know, the, the, the opportunity to move, move material or, or both have a place or one is clearly going to win or. Yeah, it is kind of a race map. I mean, the, the different, uh, different manufacturers, um, uh, I guess have different views on which is the best option for a mine. And, but I think largely, um, you know, uh, major mines are looking at both options because they have a lot of operations but um i think some some mines have are sort of deciding to go electric and go down that route and and perhaps less interested in hydrogen i think they both have a place i think with i think the there are some issues with batteries around the sizing um that that um yeah. and sort of recharging that that make it um, you know, a challenge, um, but, and there are issues with hydrogen around commercial commercialization and, and cost and pilot projects that, that make it a challenge. So it all depends on the location of the mine. It depends on the power infrastructure at that site. Um, and I think what we'll see in the next few years, I don't think we'll see one win over the other but i think what you're seeing right now is mines are weighing both options and eager to see how they they play out um let's say over the next three years because they do have to make decisions around how to displace diesel from their fleets right and, and on the electric on the storage piece you know it, within this context of all this pressure around you know emissions and you know being good stewards of our environment do, do, do the mine does the mining community draw a big circle around the life cycle like for example with the batteries you know often you know, particularly lithium ion there's there's a carbon emissions both you know pr primarily on the front end pulling it out um and, and maybe on the back end from a from a disposal does that factor into the analysis as well that whole life cycle of carbon emissions or is it just you know the power generated and used on site yeah that's a good question i haven't 
To be honest, I don't know. I mean, I'd imagine that, I mean, there are some mines who are involved in pulling those materials out of the ground and, you know, that there's, I, I'd imagine there's um, some thought to it, but it's not a conversation I've had, but it's, it's a good point, Matt. I'll have to think about that one and think about it. And, I, and it's not, not my own point. You know, we've been in front of, for example, automotive clients who have, you know, or the early days of energy storage, you know, particularly in Ontario as a peak demand opportunity, we would go in front of certain clients and say, hey, have you considered batteries? And, and they would say, well, have you considered, you know, the the life cycle uh, carbon footprint of a battery versus a, a fuel cell in, in that particular case? So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a discussion that we hear come up occasionally. And and, uh, you know, it. it it has merit to go down that uh, that, that trail too. Yeah. So, um, so we've talked about renewable energy. We've talked about hydro, you know, in terms of wind and solar and storage. We've talked about hydrogen. Those are they strike me as those are you know here or almost here type technology. Are there some certain things that are you know as we look ahead to twenty thirty? Are there certain technologies that are maybe five years out or they're on the horizon? They're starting to creep up and and. People are starting to get excited about it, but it's pre-commercialization. But maybe, maybe to tease our listeners a little bit about, you know, what do you see kind of coming down the road? Are there other technologies there? I have a, I have a bit of a bias on this, Matt, because I, I, I am, I am very supportive of green energy. So I, I do fundamentally believe that, you know, big picture, we have to be. Um, investing in technologies that are uh, low carbon and sustainable so that's why I'm I'm a fan of renewables integration for industry and also for uh, electrification and hydrogen because I think they all fit together to really provide uh, sustainable power and and transport there are some technologies that um, you know that I think are of interest to the mining sector um, uh, that you know also um, may or may not um, come into uh, play as part of the solution. Um, I know um, we've certainly covered some uh, some sessions on small modular reactors, so small nuclear, and that is very much of interest to the mining sector. Um, it's a little ways away, but it's certainly something that um, that mines are interested in, as uh, as or some mines are, are very interested in as part of their energy solution. Um, and um, liquefied natural gas is another mm -hmm. one that is is very much of interest. Um, technologies that provide uh, low carbon or lower carbon profile. Are very very much of interest. Um, biomass is is strongly of interest. Um, I know mines are, are very keen to understand the opportunity there. Um, uh, concentra concentrated solar power is another Ooh. one. Um, yeah, and that again is very very site specific. You have to have a lot of land um to to consider that one um but it's certainly it's certainly one that has come up and um uh perhaps not as as ubiquitous but is certainly uh of interest so i think there'll be a whole handful of 
technologies that are part of this solution. I think what we're going to find is the time frame for integrating them and making sure they work properly and achieve the uh, aims in terms of you know operational budgets and emissions reduction is just getting really really tight so there's a lot of focus on this right now and even you know a global pandemic has not sort of uh, shifted the focus on this it's really important and it's really urgent and um, it's something that we're we're really enjoying being part of because we've been focusing on uh, renewable energy for mining and decarbonizing mining for a long time now before it was really a top of mind concern. So that sort of seeing all of those pieces come together as we started our chat looking at the big picture with investors and customers is just phenomenal and, and exciting, but it's a major challenge. And there'll be a lot of different technologies and services that'll be part of that solution. Wow, that's a that's a great uh, a great summary picture of of the challenge and the opportunity in front of us and 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 your reference to the pandemic. I mean, you you are at the center of this discussion, and in large part, that's probably due to many things. But your conferences are, you know, a key part. How, how have you pivoted in this uh, global pandemic with? You know, conferences in all of our worlds are a big deal, and where a lot of you know the, the the world gets moved forward, and you know ideas come out of, and and discussions happen, and deals are made. And so, have you guys, you know, you probably had a big challenge. How how have you guys pivoted, and what what is uh, in front of you in terms of that part of your business? Yeah, yeah, it's been a real challenge. So we we uh, we had we're supposed to be in. Uh, Perth, Australia in June for our annual Energy and Mines Australia Summit. Um, initially, we postponed that, but then we moved it virtually and, and it took place beginning of August. Um, and then we have another event on hydrogen and mines coming up in a few weeks, October 6th and 7th. And then we've moved our uh, annual Toronto event on Energy and Mines uh, to a virtual conference December 8th through 10th. And um, you know, it's it's really uh, it's really been a huge learning curve, Matt. I mean, it's just been <laughs> massive. Um, what translates, like you said, we go to these events to meet people, to share information, to bump into someone at coffee, you know, to have a beer, that sort of thing, and that doesn't translate to the virtual world. So, what does translate very well is content. So that's where we've put our focus is, you know, you can still provide the same high quality content online. In fact, we had more people participate in our event and more of a broader geographical focus because people didn't have to travel, et cetera. So um, the networking piece of it has to be really uh, produced. So you have to create an environment where, uh, where you have the right people um, available and you know smaller groups and condensed periods because people are fitting you know online events around their workday they want to know that if they are taking certain parts of the day out to really dive deep that they're meeting the people that they need to meet so we've we've been constantly adapting our business model and our virtual events to try to to meet 
the right format um, for an online uh, conference and and we're still adapting it so and we don't anticipate you know either even once you know the pandemic is is we're through that we anticipate there'll be a, a period where you know people will slowly getting back in into the swing of things in terms of attending events so we'll carry on doing virtual events until it makes sense and and we're hoping to carry on even afterwards because there is a lot of benefit in terms of the content and also the analysis you can get from a virtual event you can see you know exactly who's logging on and who's interested in what content and who connects and that sort of thing so that's been a real it is a completely different medium so it's been a real learning curve but um yeah we're uh we're enjoying it and 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 surviving so that's good <laughs> kudos to you it's a testament to to your resilience to uh, to pivot and to figure it out and and to continue to put out good content that uh, are helping people uh, manage their their energy particularly in this mining context. And so as we, Adrian, as we conclude uh, our, our time together, are there some kind of final thoughts or words as we try to wrap our arms around this massive uh, topic of how do we reduce our uh, carbon footprint in the mining world? Are there some closing thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, um, no, I just think it's a really, really exciting time. I think there's a lot of pressures. I think we're going to see more sort of guidelines in term of, terms of how to disclose this information, how to track it, how to, how to reach the targets that we have to reach. And I think it's going to be quite collaborative. I think companies will be working together. And I think there's a lot of business opportunities through this challenge that um, will benefit, you know, Canadian companies and companies all over the world that are involved in, you know, decarbonization and renewable energy. I think the, the time has come. It's not going to come from governments. It'll come directly from industry. And I think that's, uh, I personally believe that's, that's really exciting. So, um, so that's it, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely to have a chat this Friday. Yeah, it's been a, a real pleasure, Adrian, as well. I, I thank you and your, your passion comes through and your excitement comes through. It's uh, certainly infectious to me and, and I'm certain it will be to the listeners. So thank you for joining us and imparting your knowledge uh, on us and, and to those who are going to listen. Um, it's, it's been real fun. So on behalf of the whole team here at uh, CEM, I want to thank uh, Lisa Barber, who's our executive producer, and Mark Charbonneau, our man behind the glass. Uh, Adrian, thank you so much. And uh, until next time, uh, stay safe and we will talk again. Thank you. Thanks, Matt.